You're listening to Advancing Our Church. Welcome to Advancing Our Church, a Changing Our World podcast about Catholic stewardship, leadership, and advancement. And I'm your host, Jim Friend. Welcome back, everybody, and thanks for downloading our show today. As we begin our show, I wanted to bring you a couple of interesting news articles that I saw over the weekend. There was an interesting article on the CNN website on Friday. Bishop Mark Seitz and several other priests in the Diocese of El Paso kneeled in prayer for 8 minutes and 46 seconds to remember George Floyd. Well, Pope Francis apparently noticed this in the news and called the bishop two days later to thank him for his response to George Floyd's death. Bishop Seitz said, quote, Frankly, what I did and what I have said is only a very small way to take part in what so many are doing in their peaceful protests. It's nice to see that our bishops and our pope are taking an active interest in what's happening today. The Chicago Tribune reported that Cardinal Blaise Cupid said he plans to use this pivotal moment as a teaching tool for the Archdiocese of Chicago students in the fall. In an in-person interview at the Holy Name Cathedral, Cupid said, The Archdiocese's goal is to have all Catholic school students participate in a discussion about Floyd's killing and its aftermath. Cupid said, and I quote, I think we need an educational piece in our parishes, in our schools, in our religious education, and we're looking to put that together for this fall because racism is taught. Nobody is born with it. And I'm sure that'll be a very interesting curriculum and many other dioceses will want to mirror that. And on the fundraising front, the nonprofit Times reported that Giving Tuesday Now, which was held last month as an emergency response to the unprecedented need caused by the coronavirus, raised $503 million. And I put this in here, folks, because you need to share that with your board, your pastor, your bishop, whomever. It's important that they know that many people are still willing and able to give in this environment. Many of Changing Our World's clients are being very successful right now. Many dioceses and nonprofits around the country are. And you're going to hear a little bit more about that on today's episode. And so, with all that news reported, let's get to work. On today's podcast, we continue our series, Advancing Our Church Through Challenging Times, and I host another panel of experts, and this time on the topic of the pastoral and the financial considerations for reopening parishes and Catholic schools. This panel discussion was aired live on our webinar on June 4th, and our guests included Kevin Kiley, the CFO and COO for the Diocese of Fall River, Ashley Connolly, the Director of Parish and School Finance for the Archdiocese of Baltimore, Matthew Mannion, the Professor of the Practice of Management and Operations Department and Faculty Director for the Center for Church Management at Villanova University, and our own Gavin Mooney, Changing Our World's President and Chief Client Officer. And so, without further ado, here's our conversation. Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Jim Friend, and I want to welcome you all to the third part of our Advancing Our Church Through Challenging Times webinar series. We have a terrific panel of guests with us today. And uh, before we get started, and I introduce them, just a couple of housekeeping items once again. If this is your first time logging into one of our webinars, you have the opportunity to ask our panelists questions throughout the webinar. And we encourage you to do that. We'll be checking those throughout the conversation you have a question, odds are somebody else on the on the panel or on the webinar does as well. So we would love to hear from you. And also, this is being pre-recorded, so we'll have a copy of this available to you through our podcast, AdvancingOurChurch.com. You can find that on our website on ChangingOurWorld.com or at AdvancingOurChurch.com. 
Thank you again to all of our panelists. We're gonna start with a prayer and then we'll go around the table real quick and introduce everybody. So let's begin in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, amen. Loving God, I come to you in thanksgiving, knowing that all I am and all that I have is a gift from you. In faith and love, help me to do your will. I am listening, Lord God. Speak your words into the depth of my soul that I may hear you clearly. I offer to you this day all the facets of my life, whether they be at home, at work, or at school, to be patient, to be merciful, to be generous, to be holy. Give me the wisdom and insight to understand your will for me and the fervor to carry out my good intentions. I offer my gifts of time, talent, and possessions to you as a true act of faith to reflect my love for you and my neighbor. Help me to reach out to others as you, my God, have reached out to me. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, amen. So a little stewardship prayer I, I uh, wrote a few years ago, and I found it's good for all occasions, especially when we're talking about financial stewardship today and some of the challenges and opportunities that are presenting themselves in this in this interesting climate that we're in. So let me just go around the table real quick, uh, the virtual table, if you will, and uh, introduce. Uh, first, we have Kevin Kiley. Welcome, Kevin. Kevin is the Chief Financial Officer and the COO for the Diocese of Fall River. Welcome, Kevin. Good to see you. Uh, Ashley Conley is the Director of Parish and School Finance for the Archdiocese of Baltimore. Welcome, Ashley. On the line, we have Matt Mannion. Matt is a professor of the Practice Management and Operations Department and faculty director for the Center for Church Management at Villanova University. Welcome, Matt. Matt is uh, down in Philadelphia. They were hit pretty bad by the storms about a day ago, and so is having some video challenges. He may join us online, but he, he'll be on the line here for this conversation. And then last, but certainly not least, our very own Gavin Mooney, uh, Changing Our World's President and Chief Client Officer. Welcome, Gavin, to the conversation. And so let's begin uh, first off with how are your dioceses thinking about the reopening of parishes and schools? There's a couple of different aspects to that. There's the the guidelines that, that you're going to have to put in place or that you're putting in place now, and then obviously the different challenges. Kevin, why don't you take that one first for us? Sure, uh, Jim. So we have uh, reopened officially uh, this past weekend, and uh, we're following uh, the guidelines from the state and also any additional guidelines from the local boards of health. We were given a 40% capacity uh, requirement. So uh, it required us to be sending out guidelines to make sure that everybody knew uh, what that number was. It turns out that in a lot of cases, they didn't even come close to that anyways, because our normal mass attendance is between 15 and 20 percent. So if you're talking about a 40 percent capacity, that can be a pretty big number uh, for a lot of folks. But it's been a slow opening weekend. I would say that uh, only about 15 percent of that 15 to 20% mass attendance uh, attended. So I think a lot of people I'm hoping are still just skittish about coming back and not just used to the fact they haven't gone to mass the last 10 weeks. Um, so we're hoping that that turns around. So uh, in really just getting out the guidelines to uh, all of our pastors and kind of it's a top three, it's making sure that everybody's wearing a mask, making sure that everybody's social distancing and also uh, making sure that everything's clean and disinfected uh, in between uh, each mask. But we sent out uh, some extensive guidelines that I can get into a little bit later, uh, but we partnered with uh, other dioceses uh, within Massachusetts to make sure that we could come out and sort of be all on the same page with that. Well, Kevin, I can imagine that there are a lot of questions that came and bubbled up from the parishes during this whole process of, of reopening. Can you recall or, or or you, Ashley, some of the different questions that came from the field or some of the concerns that they're dealing with? 
Yeah, I, I'd say communion was a big one. When are we going to give it out? Uh, how are we going to give it out? Uh, there was a question about communion on the tongue. And I mean, that's not that's above my pay grade. But we, we, <laughs> did, we did need to get those guidelines out to make sure that everybody was on the same page. So we, we gave them the option of either doing it during the mass uh, as usual or giving them the option to do it after mass, after the final blessing, which personally I'm more supportive of because it, it kind of gets folks uh, out uh, after that disruption of the of the communion procession. So um, that to me was probably the biggest thing. And then secondarily to that, what if somebody tests uh, positive? Right. Do we all have to quarantine? And I, and I think really, again, that was something that we couldn't uh, answer specifically. So we had them, uh, the guys that were really concerned about that, we just had them contact their local boards of health to do some scenario planning with them. Uh, just to say, hey, what do we need to do if something like that happens? Because there's confidentiality issues. There's a whole bunch of things you have to be aware of. We, we just kind of push them to the local boards of health to, to get more uh, assistance on that. We also had challenges with communion, especially if it was an outdoor mass and people brought their own seating. I think one of our biggest challenges is that the governor allowed each county in the state to implement um, their return uh, in, at their own pace. And so we have three counties of the nine that we serve that have not uh, allowed for uh, public worship greater than 10 people. And then the other the other concern that our parishes had was how do they structure the mass times so that they can properly clean and disinfect afterwards? And just the logistics of that, who's going to do it? How many people do they need to help? We did have a handful of parishes that actually had services they had less than 50 people at each one of their services, but the outdoor masses were much more heavily attended. And the mass schedules, I've noticed also, not everybody's returning back with a full mass schedule. Many people are just going to try one Sunday mass and then complement that with the continued uh, resource of an online mass. Is that what you're finding as well? Yes. We had a couple parishes who did a Saturday mass and then a Sunday mass indoors, and then a Sunday mass outdoors, if they were allowed. And then they recorded and then live streamed, uh, I believe, the Saturday night mass, and then also had it available for viewing later. Sure. Matt, are you on the line? I am, yes, Jim. Oh, what, what is your perspective on on the reopening? Um, how, are, how are you thinking about that? It's very similar to what Ashley and, and Kevin said. So we reopened um, we have the option to reopen in Philadelphia this weekend and have to have public mass by next weekend. And it's all the same things. There's been a mix of parishes that are going with a normal mass schedule versus cutting them in half based on the lower attendance that's been seen in other dioceses that have opened ahead of us. The, the communion question, the one that I hadn't heard before, but several parishes are actually having people stay in their seats at communion and the priests are going out to them to minimize the movement during it. So that was interesting. And the other thing is, is the collections, is having collection baskets by the door, but really encouraging people not to bring envelopes, but to shift to the online giving. So it's mm -hmm. less touching of stuff. I've also heard the practice of some parishes just waiting uh, for the distribution of communion at the very end of Mass, and then people to exit immediately, or doing it even outside at the end of Mass to minimize the contact and the spread of the virus. Interesting. Yeah, and what I what I've heard, and I'm not a liturgist, but what I understand too is that allows the priest or the minister of the Eucharist to mm -hmm. wear a mask and gloves if they do that because it's outside of the liturgy. So mm -hmm. different people are looking at different things there. Yeah, absolutely. So you know, we've all been uh, in this uh, quarantine situation for a few months now. 
And, um, and we've developed some new habits throughout this whole process as well, especially around liturgy. Uh, I, I'm the father, my wife and I are the parents of three teenagers, and now they have the, ma- the luxury of having mass whenever they want because it's online and they can replay it whenever they want. Do you guys think that this has changed the way we look at church in a permanent way? Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of implications with what's happening. Certainly, we've looked at the way that we work, work from home, uh, the way that we celebrate liturgy. Uh, how are we thinking about the long-term effects of, uh, of this quarantine? I'll take that one. So I think that if we don't embrace the change that's been forced upon us, then we've missed the boat. This change has given us the opportunity to get outside of our comfort zone where it's so tied to buildings. And especially in the city, our buildings are monstrous and they're inefficient in many ways. But heaven forbid we try to close a church building down that's been there for so long. And if we can get people to not be so tied to that physical structure, but remember that God is wherever we are, then we've we've really been embracing the opportunity that's been presented to us. It also is going to allow us to move out of this maintenance mode that we've been in for so long and hopefully help us to move into mission and focus on evangelization and meeting people where they are. Mm-hmm. Matt, how about you on that one? Yeah, I couldn't agree with Ashley more. I do believe it has changed things, and I believe those a lot of the changes will be permanent. I think I've heard some people talking about the virtual first mass as an entree from an evangelization standpoint. And mm-hmm. I, I know, Jim, we, we've got three teenagers, too, and, and we've gone to mass throughout the country for the last 10 weeks. And so it's been fascinating yeah. to visit different churches that we couldn't physically visit right. for the celebration of the Eucharist. But I've also been really impressed by how many of our people who might have been raised Catholic, or even some who aren't, the viewership in many parishes for the virtual Masses is significantly higher than the normal attendance would be at that Mass. So I think the real opportunity is how do we continue to have a virtual presence that, show, that serves as a gateway for people into the life of the community. So I think that one is a huge one. Um, I know we're going to talk more about it too, but I also think the way that we engage people in their funding support of church mm-hmm. life. I'm hoping this is the beginning of what will be a permanent change, not only in the mechanism for doing it, but more importantly for the mentality for doing it. Absolutely. Let's talk a little bit about the, some of the financial uh, aspects of, of these challenges. And, you know, we're all in this budget pre- preparation mode, those of us who are on the July 1 to June 30th budget cycle. What does that look like for the fall versus the spring as you work with the parishes, the diocese, the schools on preparing budget, budgets for the next fiscal year? Kevin, you want to take that one first? Yeah, uh, minor minor question, Jim, um, about uh, dealing with budgets right now. It's, it's uh, <laughs> I, I, I just... It's it, a small it, part of your life, I'm sure, right now. It, it's one of the most monumental decisions that, or, or many decisions that we're going to have to go through in the next uh, three to six months. And we just don't know enough uh, about the impact. I mean, we've been tracking parish offertory on a weekly basis. We've been you know, calling folks to make sure that they're entering their financial information in, in as timely a fa- fashion as possible, just to try to get uh, an indication on how much offertory specifically is down so that we can make some more informed decisions collectively as a diocese. But but we're about 40% down on average uh, with offertory the past 10 weeks compared to last year. That's troubling to me because we obviously uh, have a parish assessment based on that offertory. Uh, We also had to delay our Catholic appeal by a month. So that's uh, an additional uh, $2 million in, in cash flow that we normally have coming in prior to the end of the fiscal year. So 
I just wow. uh, talked to my director of finance this morning. We have a finance council meeting coming up. And I said, so how are we doing for, for June 30th? And um, it had shifted uh, about $7 million to, to the red uh, from the last time we met together with the finance council. And, and $5 million of that was investment returns, which mm-hmm. is another big uh, situ- uh, issue that um, everybody's been impacted you know, with their investments. So I'm hopeful that, that that's all going to you know, come back, but there are going to be some long-term effects with that offertory decline, especially if we continue with the minimal mass attendance on top of the minimal mass attendance that we had to begin with. That's going to put tremendous pressure on our budget to uh, be able to, to make things work in 21. So we usually we end June 30th. We're usually about this time ready to approve the, the, the new budget, but I think at this point, we're going to be going with a forecast just so that we can keep the finance council informed and then retroactively approve something in the fall once we get some better information in terms of what's what uh, what the impact is. The situation certainly continues to evolve. Absolutely. Matt, how about from your perspective? Yeah, I mean, it's it certainly it's full of uncertainty. So trying to do budgeting with this much uncertainty, I don't know if it's ever happened. And as Kevin pointed out, I mean, I heard someone describe the Easter collection as the Black Friday of the church financial year. And obviously Easter collections were way off this year because people weren't physically in church. And so the order of magnitude for that is, is certainly causing challenges for so many. I do think, I mean, I have this cautious optimistic that we can change people's giving habits. And I know more people have adopted online giving and mm-hmm. that's clearly more predictable from a budgeting standpoint. And, and we know since most people only go to their own parish on average 37 out of the 52 weeks a year, if you can get them to do online giving, that individual givers contributions go up on average 25% a year. So there's some potential upside, but there's way more downside that's out of it. I think the other big challenge is, you know, I don't know you can do a single budget. So, I mean, even here at the university, we just announced or whatever, they're, they're presenting to the board four different options of what could unfold over the next fiscal year, because we don't know if the COVID is going to come back, then we assume it's going to come back, but how big it comes back. So kind of what's plan A, B, and C, plan C, plan D. And I think parishes and churches and schools have to do the same thing, which makes it a lot more complex. The one big opportunity I would say, though, is I think people realize this is a different world. And so yeah. I think there's a huge opportunity for parishes and schools and dioceses to be totally transparent about, like, look, this is the reality of our situation. And... Mm-hmm. These are what we're saying are our priorities. We're going to put money towards these things, and we don't have the money to do these things. So some of these things that have been part of what we've had historically, they're either going to be not now or potentially not even ever again. And, right. and to be upfront about that and clear about what's important, where we are going to continue to spend money and make investments. Well, what is uh, when we're looking at projections of 40 or, or 30 to 40 or maybe even more percent down for the following, for the new fiscal year. What does that look at like fall versus spring? I would think that a lot of this is going to hit in the spring or over a 12-month cycle versus the next six. This is Matt. I, Kevin yeah. <laughs> actually doing more forecasting than I am. Yeah, I, I think it's certainly going to be, I mean, hopefully there'll be a slight rebound in the summer as churches open and particularly people that will lose people to summer vacations. I think that's the vacation loss is going to be different, mm-hmm. but that's offset by the economic loss of so many people being unemployed. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think the real question mark is what happens next winter. And I don't yeah. think anybody knows. But Kevin and Ashley are dealing with that more than I am. <laughs> How about yeah. in the Archdiocese of Baltimore, Ashley? What do you see in there? 
So we recommend it. We're down um, 18% in March and April. Um, we're looking to be about that much down in May as well. Um, our EFT offertory has um, basically covered what we've lost from the loose collection and a little bit of what hasn't been turned in from the envelope perspective. We had 39 parishes who didn't have EFT offertory when we went into this. 14 have signed up um, to start doing it through this process. So uh, we're moving that along. Um, what we're telling parishes is like Matt described to do scenario budgets. Um, we're recommending that they uh, remain, they keep their offertory about 30 to 40% down through December. And then the scenario part kicks in in the six months between January to June, just because that is the um, greatest unknown. I mean, everything's unknown right now, but, um, and to either maintain that level, um, slowly return it, um, or just have uh, different scenarios regarding that. I told the um, our presbyteral council yesterday that I think right now we're kind of in the eye of the storm. The PPP has secured our financials for eight weeks or maybe now a little bit longer with what they passed yesterday. But in the beginning, we were really scared. We didn't know what was going to happen. We're kind of in this eye now, but the worst is is could be yet to come um, with what happens over the summer and then well into the fall and potentially into the spring. Yeah, Jim, I would agree with Ashley on that. I think there's a, a false sense that there's pluses and minuses to everything, but the PPE loans were fantastic. But there's a, I think there's to certain parishes, there's a false sense of security there, and they probably should have put a plan in place and be proactively putting offertory restoration plans in place over the last eight to 10 weeks. And if they haven't, they certainly should be now because I think that, that we're not at the dip yet because as Kevin relayed, you know, 40% capacity doesn't make up for 100% of offertory and then you factor in the PPE expiring. So I think the summer is going to be tough. And I think that parishes, dioceses, uh, need to have an offertory restoration program in place now to bounce back, as well as on the operational side from a diocesan perspective, from an annual appeal perspective, that also needs to be in place now and use the next 90 days to, to sort of try and recoup some of that lost revenue through the new methodologies and channels that, that have worked so well uh, across different parishes and dioceses, whether that be Zoom or webinar or online channels, et cetera. Mm. Gavin, actually, I'm glad you jumped in because that my next question was going to be for you. What are some of the opportunities that you have seen kind of around the country as we've you've worked with different changing our world clients and uh, prospective clients? Yeah, the, the first opportunity, I think, I, I won't start with fundraising. I'll start with communication and collaboration. Just has been a great 10 months to in the different dioceses that we work in to engage with pastors, to engage with volunteers at the local level, utilizing the methodologies that I just referenced previously, utilizing the technologies and sort of being a resource for them. And I think for the pastors, you know, they, they, they're not business people um, like the folks on the phone here and they have their own business people, but they need it and continue and will continue to need support throughout this. And so a, the ability to, to get our teams on the phone with them uh, and be a resource for them and just communicate with them and ask, how are you doing for starters? That's a real plus and I think will help goodwill. Oftentimes, there's a bit of a, a rub between diocese and central ministry and, and parishes out there. And I think that will only help improve um, that collaborative uh, nature and that relationship. On the actual implementation of 
the offset or trying to offset some of the downside effects of the pandemic, these offertory restoration programs have, have really worked well. It'll take a little bit of time to do the year over year, month over month analysis, depending on what the ice is and you know, whether the numbers roll up and how quickly they roll up to finance. But they're they're working well. Initially, again, I would say there was some of this, I can't from a pastor's perspective, I can't deal with this now. You know, I've got to deal with this, this, and this. And that's understandable, right? Um, you know, who would have expected mass to end basically and not be able to practice the liturgy? So I think that there was initial, okay, how do I deal with that acute stage? And then as time has gone on, educating pastors on, you know, the necessity for there's no mission without some margin. And I think that uh, has become more of a priority. And now taking on some of the, we put together parish toolkits and restoration programs and, you know, communication tactics for for each of the the parishes and dioceses that we work with. And now sort of they're embracing that. Um, because they see the PPE expiring to go back to Ashley's previous point to my previous point, and and they don't see the incoming uh, you know parishioners because of the guidelines and policies that are in effect in respect of states and counties. So there is a willingness there. I think they need to be coached how. I think they need the support um, as to how to get there. I think they need to embrace the communication channels to go back to what Matt had said previously that are that are there, and they are doing that. And I think that's only going to help. Other things we're seeing, you know, mini campaigns, 90-day mini campaigns um, to try and make up for uh, what's happened over the last 90 days. And so, that, you know, you put a timetable around it, you create a sense of urgency around it, you put a communication channel and vignettes, um, video vignettes and things like that we've utilized um, to try and, uh, and help support them. So there, some of the practices that we're utilizing at the parish level, at the diocesan level, um, you know, there's tactics there. And, you know, you, you talk about silver linings. We worked work with, and Kevin knows the Lynch Foundation up in, in Boston very well. And we've worked with them as it relates to highlighting Catholic school education in this moment in time. And the fact that Catholic schools are still functioning, and actually I'm sure this probably resonates with you as well in your role. And what we've done is worked, they have about 130 schools, elementary schools in the Archdiocese of Boston. What we've been able to do is showcase that Catholic schools are continuing to function despite what's going on around us. And now I have two little ones who are crawling the walls downstairs who go to our local public school. And then I see what's going on in our Catholic schools. And so it's a moment in time. It's not to say, oh, look at us, we're better than you. But it is a moment in time to showcase the differentiator that our schools continue to operate and function. And so with the Lynch Foundation in Boston, we've been working with their elementary schools in the Archdiocese of Boston. We've been doing a paid social campaign uh, to highlight that and to showcase the resilience of Catholic schools in this moment in time and getting um, some great feedback. And, and my end objective, our end objective is to help drive enrollment, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, we talk about all these financial challenges. Well, some parents are sick of, of the, the parochial public schools because of the fact that they were in function and they might give Catholic schools a consideration. You know, so there's things like that happening in terms of silver linings that we've seen and will continue to see, I think, um, as we showcase what Catholic schools can do during this moment of time. Terrific. We have a couple questions that came uh, for the panel uh, on, on our chat here. When the conversation moved to, moves to finances, I'd be interested in knowing if the participants see new opportunities for fundraising as mass resumes. Um, Gavin, you've touched on a few. 
Uh, anything you're seeing in your diocese, Kevin, or your diocese, Ashley, as far as new fundraising opportunities? Well, we have talked about how to implement the text to give. Um, yeah. We may have electronic EFT, but that's all based on a pre-planned schedule that the person, parishioner has signed up and agreed to. So how can we implement more real-time giving is one of our next steps. That's great. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that, uh, as, as well as, as online offertory. I mean, we only had roughly a third of our parishes that were doing it for this, probably are now up a little over half. And I imagine that that will continue to increase. I think more importantly, and I, and I realize that, that the online offertory and trying to keep the water out of the boat is, is more of a, a short-term tactical thing, but, but clearly what we're looking at, and, and Ashley touched on this, is where are we going numbers-wise? I mean, again, we have 78 parishes in the Diocese of Fall River, and we only need about 40. And, um, and that's probably not too far off the mark uh, in terms of that 50% reduction for dioceses and archdioceses, uh, at least in the Northeast anyway. And again, I, I, you know, you risk being uh, draconian and kicking people when they're down and, and using this pandemic uh, almost as an excuse to kind of go in for that. But we have to, you know, confront those brutal facts and, and really use this as an opportunity to not be as concerned about getting 78 parishes onto online operatory, but, you know, 50 to 60 strong parishes that that have that capability and, and where do we go from here great another question from uh, the group uh, how are your parishes schools catholic organizations handling the planning of events and activities and and such what kind of guidelines have you had to put into place or what are you seeing uh, implemented in your in your dioceses matt from your perspective and the the folks that you work with at villanova or or gavin from the, our, our client perspective I'll start off with the thing, the thing that I've seen the most is that people are, there seem to be kind of two camps. There's, there's people who believe like everything's going back to the way it was, which seems right. to be a very small portion of the people that at least we've been talking to. Most of them are realizing that this next year is going to, until there's a vaccine, that the world and, and large group gatherings are not going to be the same as they were. Whether it's schools trying to figure out how they're going to do the setup in the classrooms or whether it's religious education or whether it's the community gatherings, all those things are being rethought to say, how do we do them in this COVID world, at least for this next year, with the hope that after this next year, there's a vaccine, then we can go back to larger communal gatherings. But yeah, we're just seeing everything being reevaluated in light of how do you do it in today's world. Yeah, I would encourage our audience to listen to one of our other uh, webinars, which was Chris Roebuck, who is the head of the school from Bishop Lynch in Dallas. It's the largest Catholic high school. They're partners of ours. And he spoke so eloquently to obviously the challenges and pitfalls which the school has faced, but how they have put in place. And it goes back to what Matt, Ashley and Kevin were saying, plan A, B and C as it relates to the reopening of the school uh, in the next couple of months. But there's a couple of silver, I'm looking for silver linings because there are a lot of silver linings in all of right. this. Um, Bishop Lynch has managed to raise a million and a half dollars over the last seven weeks for financial aid. That's unprecedented. It's a, it's a high school. And the way they did that, the way Chris and his leadership team did that, and Matt used the word transparent, open, candid conversations about what is going on with the school, what the impact of COVID-19 is having on the school, the kids, the mission of the school, and the financials 
of the school. And we, we worked with him to put together state of the union conversations with all of his different constituencies. So we did it with the board. We did it with alum. We did it with parents. We did it with students. We did it with grandparents. And he spoke for 30 minutes to tell folks what they're experiencing, what they're doing about it, and what the future looks like. And he didn't have all the answers, but he just spoke transparently, candidly about what was going on. And that to me, in terms of the silver lining, was a great communication tool and will continue to be a great communication tool moving forward for that. Well, now we've done it in hospitals. Now we've done it in diocese. We've done social service organizations. Really a moment in time to get people closer to you, to get those who are supportive of you, um, your nearest and dearest closer to you, to let them into the tent and understand what's going on. And guess what? When the time is right to ask, they will be supportive of you. So there's the academic piece of the pie, which he spoke to during that and how that's going to roll out. But then there's the business ops side of it, both from a tuition perspective, enrollment, retention perspective, as well as then on the fundraising side, as well as what Kevin said, how they're managing and how they're drawing down and their endowments. And many of this, the schools have to draw down a couple of percentage, extra percentage points in order to sustain the model, right? Uh, but great conversation. I, I would encourage you. Chris is a great resource. Mm-hmm. So have a listen to his, his webinar. We will. We'll leave a link to that in our show notes. Um, I'll just share an experience that I've had uh, working with uh, Chestnut Hill College down in the Philadelphia area. They had a, a gala uh, 11 years now, and uh, they brought us in and turned the entire gala into an online event, uh, a $300,000 goal. Uh, we just uh, got our final gift of 25000 in that put us 121% of goal, 362000 is the last total. It's a different kind of event, right? So when you're sitting there with a glass of wine at a gala and you're bidding on things and you're writing your name down on little sheets and whatever, it's a different kind of event than going out there and asking people just for an outright gift. But it also minimized the cost quite a bit to the school. And uh, we've had a lot of schools calling us about that uh, since we did that. But it's a different way of thinking. You know, you don't have to worry about a dinner or expenses. You, we, we created teams. Uh, we had team captains. Uh, we had little video vignettes every single day, a new message on social media. And it really was uh, it, what they found at the end of it, it. It created a confidence that didn't exist before. There was some concern at the beginning of it. Should we be fundraising in this in this environment? Well, people are hurting and absolutely they are. Unemployment is through the roof. But there are also folks who, like many of us here on, on the line, are working from home, working differently and still want to support the the schools, the institutions that we always have. So it was a, it was a great success. And uh, and it has now emboldened them to continue on. Uh, with other fundraising efforts uh, and and keep moving forward. Kevin, Ashley, what are you guys seeing in your diocese around events? Anything? Well, many of our schools switched to the virtual events, and we had been talking to them about doing that for years, doing it every other year, picking certain events that you can ensure that you have community engagement, but maybe the next year have it virtually. And then the following year, go back to the community part, just Mm -hmm. because people get tired of going to, you know, one event, one gala every month for all of the different organizations that they serve in addition to their kids' sports and everything else that they're doing. But our schools, they didn't want to do that. They kind of balked at it. And now that they've been forced to do it and they saw how successful they were, I think that they'll embrace it more. Our guidelines really, again, are following the state. We're issuing phase two guidelines now for Maryland that will, we go into phase two on Friday, um, so the archdiocese will issue our guidelines, and um, and that will really uh, determine how events are held within the diocese for the next phase. 
I would add just, uh, you know, in terms of doing everything virtual, that's great. And I think, you know, it's been great that we've been able to pivot to that. The only thing I would say is that, and I understand it's an inconvenience for a lot of folks and all of us that are involved going to those, you know, physical events and the expense around that and the time. A lot of the folks that are going to our events are on the older side. And, you know, for now, obviously that uh, is a risk, but I wouldn't want to see that kind of become the new norm because a lot of those folks look forward to those events because it's the only time they get to see other folks in that space, you know, maybe once or twice a year. And uh, they also want to see the bishop, you know, they, they, you know, they want to be in the same room and, and um, it, it's kind of, you know, it's that ability to connect uh, that you don't get uh, virtually. And, and, you know, I'll talk about that a little later when it, you know, with regard to the re- reopening of work. And, but I mean, I think I underestimated the need for the connection, you know, being uh, in the same office and everybody working together. And then when we uh, were thrust into this virtual environment, I was like, hey, this is great. You know, and then once you're close to three months into it, though, it's like, uh, you know, it's like you want to kind of get back into that office rhythm and you want to be with people. And um, it's just not the same. So um, but but I I'm glad that, you know, we've been able to successfully pivot like other folks with with virtual events and be successful with that. Kevin, I would just jump on that and, and agree with you that um, virtual events certainly in the long run shouldn't substitute for ever having a gala again. Galas, typically the energy that goes into a gala or an event, uh, you're not going to raise as much as through a gala as you would an annual fund or a capital project. But they do serve their function to forge new relationships, to bring people back to campus, to bring them to your school or what have you. But they may look at an online event as doing something that might boost their annual fund, you know, or be an, a day of giving that might be a little bit more enhanced than they did in the past. So I think that's kind of how some of our clients are thinking. We have another question here um, from Katie or Kate. I'm sorry. We were about to start an increased giving campaign right when the pandemic hit. Do you think September would be a good time to start this campaign? Our offertory is only down slightly compared to last year. Gavin, you want to take that one? I mean, I think I said it already. Yeah. Why wait till September? You know, right. I mean, there's there's no time like the present, right? So that's the way I think about it. Just think about the amount of people that are asking right now. Not, you know, there's 1.3 million nonprofits out there. Everybody's asking, and so why, why wait till September? Why not put your church first and your ministry mm-hmm. first and ask for us? I mean, you know, faith-based fundraising is usually top of mind, or certainly one or two for for most people. And why not put the church first for, for, you know, why not? That's how I say start now. Yeah, I would just um, also echo and just say, Kate, you know, we would recommend that once a year is not too much to talk to parishioners about the offertory and to remind people of the importance of it. And so we always recommend to our parishes that there should be some kind of an annual renewal of, of treasure, uh, just because if, if what we find is if you don't do it for a few years, the funds begin to taper off over time and, and people need that reminder and they need to be continued to be in that habit of giving on a, on a weekly basis. Um, I have another question here from the, from the group, from Susan. Should the parishes apply for the economic injury disaster loan? We, we didn't get into that. Uh, okay. We, we um, were all about uh, payroll protection 
Okay. Uh, and as we talked about earlier, that that's been, I mean, we've we probably secured about $25 million in in PPP across the across the diocese. And again, that's been the lifeblood. But uh, in terms of that other aspect of the CARES Act, no, we did not um, get into that. Great. Super. I don't know about Ashley, but, but uh, we didn't. We did not either. And I wasn't shaking my head, no, they shouldn't do it. I was shaking my head, no, that I wouldn't want to answer that for them. <laughs> I think that all these things have to be the opposite at local level. No, seriously, that should be the kind of conversation you should be having with your pastoral council and with your local diocese to see if it makes sense for what you're doing or not. Yeah. Well, Matt, what are some of the silver linings that uh, you're seeing in this crisis right now? What are some of the, the, the new opportunities that have emerged through this time of quarantine? You know, I think there have been. I mean, despite the tremendous loss of life and loss of employment and disruption, one is I think it's been it's been a beautiful accelerant of some much needed change in the way we do things. And whether it's Ashley's point, the shift to trying virtual events or the shift to really promoting online giving as a lifeblood for the future or exploring live streaming for places that never did it before. There's a lot of stuff that people have been talking about and some some more forward-moving mission-driven churches have been doing that I think has gotten to a larger portion of our parishes and our schools, which is a great thing. Um, I think it's really, I think in a very healthy way, it's forced our parishes and our schools and our dioceses to take a hard look at what is our fundamental mission and what are the things that we're doing that are helping to share the good news of Jesus Christ and what are some of the things that we're doing that are nice things that might have been nice for a long time, but are not mission critical and allowing some of that stuff to be jettisoned and, and to force some of the hard conversations, even, I mean, Kevin gave the example of his diocese, but there's many dioceses that know they have the wrong, or the, the churches aren't in the right places for where the people are, for where the mission is, and there's some overdue adjustments that to be made. But by asking the hard questions about mission, I think that it's a huge opportunity to reevaluate all those things in light of what's been forced upon us um, but to really make intelligent decisions going forward and, and come up with a mission and come up with a plan that I think will inspire people to be a part of it and to take a renewed active life in it. The, the one last two thing that I think, too, is a huge opportunity um, that I haven't seen a ton of response to yet, because obviously we're doing so much to get through the current pandemic. But teaching in a business school, I can tell you there's been many, many people, a lot of conversation about how people don't want to go back to what life was like before. And how many people have found while it's been difficult to be homeschooling and doing a full-time job and doing everything else, there's also been a niceness about a bit of this forced pause on the world that has caused individuals to reevaluate what's most important to them. I think it's a huge opportunity for the church over these next couple months as people are transitioning to whatever is next to be a guide and to accompany people through that conversation about what really is important to you, what's really important to me as a husband, as a father as a worker and kind of, and am I living my life in accord with what's, what I say is most important or have I just gotten caught up in a bunch of things that are filling my day? So I think that revisit from an organizational standpoint and all the communication and everything else that's been happening has been awesome from an organizational standpoint for parishes and dioceses and schools. I think the next piece is can we help our people through that same kind of personal reorganization for whatever life is going to be like after this? I think it's a huge opportunity to disciple people and draw them more fully into the mission of what our church is about. Uh, again, I haven't touched on this with, with the ability for schools to pivot to an online learning environment. I, I, I think that was uh, incredible where I, a lot of the public school systems, at least from up our way, 
or flat-footed with that and really didn't even get into or back to the online teaching for three, four weeks after the initial closure of schools. So that's something that we can leverage moving forward. That said, we only have about 80% enrolled for next school year. That's over a thousand kids that still are undecided in terms of what they're going to do. It's, and it's a completely different thing to me, the school situation compared to the parish situation. I mean, clearly we have too many parishes and we have more than enough capacity to, to fill the demand. Um, and to a degree we do with the schools, but it's different. We just closed the high school uh, in a K through four school right after the pandemic. I mean, for all intents and purposes, it may have stayed, they may have stayed open another year, but the pandemic really was the accelerant. So they were closed, but that's two less schools that we have. And now we're worried about what other schools are going to do. And all I would say is, I think we all need to be collectively aware of, as the church in the United States, what everyone's planning to do. Because if we close two, I know Newark closed a bunch. If every diocese and archdiocese, I mean, we stand to lose perhaps over 100 schools over the next year across the country, that's going to be devastating just in terms of what we're doing as church and how we're educating uh, our future. So I do, you know, that's something I hadn't been uh, as worried about, but I'm very worried about now. Mm -hmm. Ashley, uh, you work with uh, the schools in the Archdiocese of Baltimore. How How are they seeing enrollment right now? Uh, so we use school admin as our um, in application and enrollment package. And before the pandemic started, we were up 3% um, in um, enrollment over last year. Um, we have slowed and we've only uh, had about 50 new applicants since the pandemic started across all of our 37 schools that use the program itself. So we're extremely concerned about what enrollment looks like. And our chancellor looks at school admin every day. We do have one high school who actually is above budget from an enrollment perspective, but they are our least expensive male high school in Baltimore. So where um, some boys may have been thinking of going to Loyola uh, Blakefield, which is quite expensive, they may have chosen to to go to Curley, which is not not as expensive. So there are schools that are are seeing uh, some benefit from the situation. I think it's the elementary schools that are going to be the hardest hit because the parents, if the kids aren't in school and they're younger, the parents have to have to be with them. If we can't ensure the parents that the kids are going to be in school, then we're we're really concerned about um, them just not enrolling or trying to do the homeschool. We have parents who have reached out to us and said, well, what tuition package can you offer us? if um, we wanna do um, online school until January and then return to, to in-person school, um, when that, what, what's, what's the tuition package gonna look like then? So it's extremely scary. I'm sure. A couple more questions came from the group here. Interesting question. How can we best support our pastors given these unique challenges? Monetary contributions are one thing, but pastors have expressed uh, how do we keep in touch with them without overwhelming them? How, how can we best support our pastors out in the field? We've done two things in Baltimore. Um, our vicars or our, our deaneries, whichever um, your diocese uses, 
they have weekly Zoom meetings um, by region with the pastors. Mm. And the pastor can join if they want, um, but it's available for them to to join and listen there, to join and talk and share. The other thing that we're doing is we're doing the same thing, but with the business managers, because what we're finding is the pastors are receiving so much information. They're not absorbing at all. And um, and they're not sharing it with their business managers. So we have the same conversations with the business managers that the pastors have, share the same communication with them, give them the opportunity to talk and the information that they need to support their pastor. Mm-hmm. Um, and the business managers, we have had amazing attendance on these regional meetings. Um, they're reaching out to each other when they're not in the regional meetings, which they weren't doing as much before. Uh, and they said that they want these regional meetings to continue weekly well through the summer. So we found right. that that's one of the most beneficial things that we've done so far. Good idea. We have to obviously keep them informed with all the correspondence, but like Ashley, we have a separate group that needs to get it as well, because more than likely they're the ones that are going to be dealing with it. We just try to be empathetic in our correspondence. And it usually consists of, I apologize for, for the deluge of information, but you really have no choice. I mean, if you <clears throat> you need information to send out on uh, PPP, I mean, it's funny because in a way, I don't feel as bad because they're only getting it from one source. I, I must have been getting PPP from a hundred different sources when this first broke. Uh, right. And it was funny because I was like, what do these people think? I'm not, I, I don't, I'm not looking at it uh, in, in <laughs> to assist, but from a, a social standpoint and an emotional standpoint, uh, we uh, implemented an employee assistance program. And I, I realized that clergy aren't technically employees, uh, but they're folks that can take advantage of the program. I haven't seen stats on it because we just rolled it out to the clergy on April 1st, but it's a way for them to confidentially go uh, online and get resources that way, as well as uh, speak to somebody uh, anonymously that whether it's a social worker or whatever the case is, but there's a variety of different resources within within that program uh, that will be beneficial to them. But I I don't know uh, the success as yet because it's so new, but that was something that we were mindful of when this started to uh, roll up because we knew uh, that there'd be uh, a lot of stress and loneliness as a a result of this. I think it's explained to something there too, Jim. I think it's a, key point that both Ashley and Kevin pointed out that the communication with our pastors to support them, just like communication with our people to support them, works best when it's two ways. So it's not just communicating to them, but having the employee assistance program where they can have someone who can listen to them and help them with their issues. Or I've seen a lot of these kind of small group gatherings on Zoom and the weekly conversations. And there's certainly a dissemination of information, but it's also a chance for sharing and people to ask their questions so that two-way communication as a piece of it, we've seen is really crucial for providing mm-hmm. support for anybody in going through this. And is not the way that many churches have historically communicated. I think that's one of the blessings is there's a bit more of the two-way through yep. this process that I think has been helpful for relationships. Here's another question. Um, thank you for the informative webinar. Does anyone have any thoughts on how parishes who have charity programs can evaluate how they will be able to respond to the increase in requests that will come. So they've established a charity program and how do we manage some of the requests that will come from that? I just uh, know 
and I'll just take Catholic Charities as an example, uh, and also a local food pantry related to one of our collaboratives. But just through conversation, you know, it it came to me where the food pantry feel that that's probably one, what they're talking about in some way, shape, or form. But this the, this food pantry at Catholic Charities was up fifty percent the demand. And I call me naive, but I was just I I was asking the CEO like, why is that? And she said, well, there's no school. So this kid, those kids get breakfast and lunch at school. And I was just like, it was the light dawned on Marblehead. So I said, all right, well, let's get uh, a food drive for our Chancery campus. And we put something together and we filled a, a big box truck uh, of food and um, and also are working towards supporting them with purchasing a new um, box truck that's going to be able to expand their capacity to to transport the local uh, food pantry at the collaborative, again, came up in conversation with the past was talking about the increase in demand. And we just got to talking and I said, we'll, we'll do another one uh, for you guys. But I, I think that all we can do really is to keep that communication going. And if folks have those charity programs at the local level, they really need to be getting out there and you know talking to their parishioners or communicating outwards uh, to, to make sure that everybody understands what the need is and that there's an increased need because people might not even realize that I, I'm embarrassed. I mean, I, I admit I, I didn't realize like why that was the case, but it was obvious when uh, it was told to me. But, um, but there's a lot of people that don't don't understand it. Mm -hmm. We had a parish who was considering establishing an emergency relief fund. Um, basically, it would be a pot of money that was set aside um, similar to the poor box. Uh, that they would uh, basically accept applications for emergency relief, whether it was rent or utilities or whatever the need was. And their thought process was that they would have a very small committee of people, that they would have an actual application that the individual would fill out describing the need, and that that committee of people would review and determine how to distribute the funds appropriately. Yeah, actually, that we've done that for a number of, at the diocesan level, we've established and have raised significant money for emergency response funds, and that's exactly how we're bringing members of the community in. There's overwhelming demand, and not everybody is going to be supported, but we're trying to be equitable, or they're trying to be equitable in terms of the distribution of those grants. At the same time, you want to make sure that you can maintain the control and the accountability over the funds that people have given you. Um, in order to account for this emergency. So that's where the application and the committee came in was to ensure that they actually had support, that it was, they were, there was truly an emergency, but also that a committee, a small committee, three or four people actually agreed um, of how to spend the funds. Terrific. Deacon James is asking, can, can someone elaborate on where we can check out an offertory restoration program and what does that look like? Gavin, you want to take that? Sure. Contact James Friend at Advancing Our Church. He'll help you out. No problem. Absolutely. <laughs> um, and then uh, Kevin's point about the potential impact of closing schools. What efforts do you uh, recommend around updating religious education programs? Um, I mean, I've know I've, I've seen other parishes that have just simply moved their religious education programs to a Zoom meeting, and actually they found that to be quite useful because. Um, people may be more available in an afternoon or they could do it at various times. It works out for these small group sharing. We've also found that a lot of parishes are moving to these small group faith sharing groups based on these Zooms. And that is building community within the parish 
um, in, in an interesting way. It kind of goes back, recalls back to the early Christians when they met in small groups in their homes. And a lot of people are doing that around this quarantine. Anybody have anything else to add to that? I would offer sure. that our family has several times during this experience Zoom overload where everyone mm -hmm. says, oh, well, we'll just do a Zoom. Right. And it's at 6.30 at night or 7.30 or 8 o'clock. And you know, we're trying to actually embrace the family dinners again and the downtime. And, and so we've had to try and manage as a family the, well, what do we allow from a Zoom perspective and what don't we allow? Um, right. So while, yes, uh, it does give us opportunities to accomplish things that we can't accomplish right now with closed buildings or limited capacity. I would caution to be careful with a virtual overload. <laughs> I think we all feel that some days, Ashley. Absolutely. Jim, just just that one of the it doesn't not necessarily related to technology, but I think another opportunity, several lining coming out of this is you know, historic or over the last couple of years, volunteers must have been wait and. Um, waning in our parishes and i think there is an excellent opportunity here obviously to change the business operational model and do better contingency planning and have reserve funds and look at different fundraising channels but i think there's a to go back to what matt said there's a great opportunity here to bring in other voices and the laity and have them support our parishes bevan up in the dice manchester is a partner of ours and she talked about how um they're planning to open up the parishes there. And yes, there's one thing giving guidance to each pastor in their respective towns and counties and the different guidance that has to come along with that. But then also for our parishioners, what it means for them. A frequently asked question as it relates to what's the expectation of me as a parishioner to come back to church. And so right. they utilize local people in the local parish communities to put together an FAQ with their guidance, but to put together an FAQ. So I think there's a big opportunity for getting more people involved and engaged from a volunteer perspective again in the church. Well, it's been a very quick hour. Maybe we could just kind of go around the uh, around the table here, the virtual table, and everybody could uh, offer some final thoughts and let us know how uh, those who are on the webinar today can reach out to you after today. Uh, Kevin, you want to go first? Any final thoughts? Yeah, that was going to be something I wanted to point out was that we're a universal church, but uh, anything but universal in our execution of, uh, of many aspects. So do you have any comments, questions, anything? If Jim gives our contact information, I'm more than happy to uh, respond to anyone that, that uh, needs some help. I would suggest, you know, for those who our diocesan employees that are uh, in this webinar to partner with your, your sister diocese and archdiocese to, to, and I know that can be challenging, but I will say that one of the things that we realized, you know, during this uh, pandemic, more so about the reopening than the, than the beginning, that we were all on the same page with what our reopening guidelines were. We had been in co uh, communication uh, several times and that's not typical, but I was happy that that was uh, a silver lining with this, that we, we were more on the same page and more communicating, you know, whether it be about reopening or the PPP and that process and, and all the information that we shared. So I'd recommend that. Uh, and again, for anyone that's a, a parish, just whoever else is in your collaborative and, and try to work together and also work with your diocese because they should have most of the expertise to, to support you uh, in what you need. Thanks, Kevin. 
I'll offer a couple of thoughts. Um, you can reach me at a Conley, C-O-N-L-E-Y, at archibald.org, which is the archdiocese um, handle. Um, a couple things. One is um, you need to re-envision your parish or school office or the chancellery's office in how people perform their work. Um, there's going to be people who uh, expect to work from home now, and, and they're very productive because they have been. Um, and so what does that look like? At the same time, how do you serve the needs of the of your primary customer? If it's the parishioner, if it's the parish, um, how do you balance the the right place with the right people with the right work? Um, we keep using the word right in the Archdiocese of Baltimore um, because we want to make sure that we are doing the right things with the right people in order to support that mission component. And the other thing that I'll offer is Religiously speaking, this is our opportunity. We had a forced change and we have to adapt and innovate because of that forced change. But the one thing that that hasn't changed is that we have to engage people. And we may not have been doing a great job of engagement before, but we've really had to figure out how to engage them virtually now. And how do we continue the engagement, the communication, and the innovation so that we make our church stronger and we make people more willing to participate? Because the other thing that we've learned through this crisis is that as humanity, we need to be with other people. We cannot be living in isolation. And so they'll come back eventually. And how do we make what they come back to more meaningful than it was when they left? Thanks, Ashley. Matt? Yeah, I think the biggest thing is I think there's a desire to go back and people talking about when people come back to church and people do all these other kind of things. And I would just encourage us to not think about going back, but about going forward. And so this has forced a lot of change that has been good and healthy. It's also caused a lot of pain, but there's clearly evidence, particularly in this country, that our, our world and our country needs the love and peace and healing of Jesus Christ as given through the church. And so we need to be a church that's going out, that is to use the title of the thing. We need to continue advancing our church. This mission is too important for the world. And so what are the ways that we're being called to do it? And to not expect that, like, this is not over. So we, we are permanently changed by this, and it will likely have a second wave. So let's continue to be planful about how we can advance our church and go forward through whatever challenges the church might face. But how can we continue to be that light of Christ in the world? I think that's the big opportunity for all of us. And I can reach the same thing. My email is matthew.manion at villanova.edu. Thanks, Matt. Gavin? I would just say the Catholic Church has been around for a long time. We've been through a lot. We're resilient. We will get through this. Albeit there's been no blueprint for this current pandemic, we can look back in recent history and look at September 11th and look at sort of the Great Depressionary mindset of 2007-2008 as moments, dark economic moments in time following which we bounce back. And so my uh, call to action would be to go back to the, that person who asked about the offertory program. You know, don't procrastinate, act. And you have an opportunity here to actually um, rethink, as Ashley said, and reconfigure what, in my case, what we're all about is church finances and supporting church, the church through philanthropy. And people will be supportive of you. And we've demonstrated that over the last 10 weeks. And I have no doubt that that will continue, uh, if not increase. So act now. Start, you know, helping with the financial well-being of your of your church moving forward. I just want to thank all four of our panelists for joining us today. This was a great conversation. 
For those that are listening, this uh, this session has been recorded. And so when we publish it on the web, we'll leave a link to each one of our panelists and their contact information so that you can reach out to them individually, as well as my contact information. And if you'd like to uh, to visit our website at advancingourchurch.com, you'll find a whole library of great sessions like this uh, that we've recorded over the last year, coming up on our one-year anniversary of uh, advancingourchurch.com. And we just had some great guests, and this week was no different. So thank you all for being a part of this. Thanks to all of our guests who have joined us for this conversation, and uh, have a terrific weekend. Thank you, Jim. Jim. Bye. Thanks. Thanks, everybody. God bless. Once again, thank you to Kevin Kiley, Ashley Conley, Matt Mannion, and Gavin Mooney for being on our show this week. And if you'd like to view the full video of our webinar, just go to our website at advancingourchurch.com and click on the show notes. Next week, we close our mini-series with a terrific panel of experts on the topic of marketing the resilience of Catholic schools. I hope you'll join us. Well, that's our show this week. Many thanks to the Changing Our World podcast team and to Pottery Studios for their support of our show. If you'd like more information about our show, please visit us at advancingourchurch.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Advancing Our Church is a production of Changing Our World, and we are a fundraising and social impact consulting firm that has been advising both nonprofits and corporations for over 20 years. For more information, please visit us at changingourworld.com. Once again, thank you for all you do to advance the mission of our church. Have a great week, everyone, and be well. God bless.